Cybersecurity and patents. What do security leaders need to know about this topic? Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. It's my privilege to be speaking today with James Denaro. He's a partner with the Cypher Law Group. Jim, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Just to start out with, why don't you introduce yourself, your firm, and talk a little bit about your current work, please? Sure. I'm a partner with a law firm called Cypher Law, and we provide strategic intellectual property counseling to companies in the information security space. Uh, so as part of that work, uh, we do things like draft new patent applications for companies that are developing proprietary technology. For companies that already have a patent portfolio, we advise them on how to monetize those existing patents through licensing. And we also do risk analysis work. Uh, for example, a company might receive a notice alleging that they infringe uh, somebody else's patent. And in that case, we can help them work out uh, a defensive strategy with the goal being to avoid costly litigation as much as possible. So to do that, uh, I have degrees in computer engineering and law. And I've been working in information security technology for the last couple of years. I've uh, recently passed the CISSP exam and have technical certifications from the Cloud Security Alliance and Cisco Systems. We kind of think of ourselves as technologists who also practice law. Well, Jim, this is a new topic for a lot of people in our audience. Maybe you can give us just a quick primer, please, on the patent process, at the same time dispel any common misconceptions or misunderstandings of patents. Sure, I think that would be very helpful. Uh, patents are procured from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and that process is typically called patent prosecution or patent procurement. And there are three basic parts to typical patent that you're likely to see, uh, those being the figures, uh, the nice pictures uh, that are very carefully drawn, a written description of the invention, which can go on for you know, one or two pages or tens of pages, and finally, at the end of the patent, uh, a set of claims, typically around 20, and these claims are what define the exclusive right of the patent owner. So in a typical scenario, an inventor would work with a patent attorney who would draft a patent application and then file it at the patent office. The patent office reviews the application and responds by either allowing the application to issue as a patent or requiring further narrowing of those claims at the end that define the exclusive right. The patent process can take a few years. Uh, at the moment, the PTO is taking about two years from the date of filing uh, to giving the first substantive review back to the applicant. Uh, to actually get the patent issued from the patent office and have the, the actual patent number and the certificate, uh, that can take another year after that uh, for, for that process to be completed after all the back and forth takes place. Uh, there are some expedited processes available that can bring that time closer to a year, uh, but at least a year in any case. Uh, once a patent is, is granted, then the term is 20 years from the date of filing. So if applicants are able to identify um, some technology that has really long-term value uh, in the present, uh, and, and if that uh, value is, can, can be monetized you know, for, for several years, then patents really can be, can be quite valuable. One of the um, key misunderstandings that people have about patents is what exactly the right is. Um, it's worth noting that patents do not actually grant a right to practice the claimed invention. Uh, rather, patents just give you a right to exclude somebody else from practicing the claimed invention. Uh, so you could have a patent on something, yet actually be blocked from practicing that, that invention 
to which you have a patent. You know, a good example would be an improvement on a process that, that somebody else invented. Uh, if the underlying core process is already patented, uh, your improvement, if your improvement requires that underlying process, your improvement could not be implemented without both your patent and the underlying patent. Jim, that's a great overview. Now, up front, we talked about cybersecurity and patents. Where do these topics come together, and what do you find is most misunderstood about cybersecurity and patents? Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting question, and I think the answer goes beyond just, just uh, the patents and intellectual property. Um, as I'm sure you've noticed, there's a lot of attention on cybersecurity now as a quote-unquote new area. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a great deal of venture capital coming in, and there's a heightened public perception of the need for cybersecurity after the various high-profile breaches, uh, such as the Zappos most recently and, and WikiLeaks and, and others like that. Uh, so while there's a great public perception of it being a new issue, uh, it's actually not new at all, and there are plenty of people who've been doing it for several decades who are happy to, to explain, you know, how far back this, this industry actually goes. Um, so as a as an established area, there are actually many players in the business that have been out there for a long time, and they've been getting patents uh, that are still relevant today. Jim, what are some examples of how organizations could be at risk if they don't have the right protections in place? There are two primary sources of risk that companies are facing today. Um, the first one is being sued for patent infringement. Um, we've done research that's identified a number of patents um, that have been issued recently, and we've also found that there are quite a few relevant patents in information security that have been around for a long time and are just now being asserted. For example, Maxim Integrated Products, the semiconductor manufacturer based out of Sunnyvale, California, recently sued Starbucks, Expedia, and several banks uh, alleging infringement of four patents that cover uh, secure transactions on mobile devices. Um, the earliest of these patents was filed uh, at the PTO in 1996, then issued in 1999. So if you could imagine what your cell phone looked like in 1996, it's, um, it's very interesting to see that patents uh, from that era can still be asserted today. Of course, these patents are still in litigation. It remains to be seen how the case plays out, but at least these patents... Um, are being asserted as relevant to this technology. Uh, this risk of being sued for patent infringement is heightened in particular when new industries are being developed and new products become successful. Um, a good example of this is, uh, is what happened with Vonage. So in the mid-2000s, uh, Vonage was sued by Verizon, Sprint, Nextel, and AT&T uh, on a bunch of patents that were alleged to cover Vonage's VoIP products. Vonage paid about $200 million in damages total uh, as a result of these patent cases. So what had happened was Vonage successfully figured out how to productize a VoIP technology that other companies hadn't really figured out how to use. And as a result of that, they ended up using technology that others had apparently already invented. Uh, and that risk, this, that risk happens here when more and more companies are coming into the cybersecurity industry. Uh, they may find themselves uh, running afoul of intellectual property rights that are held by some of the companies that have been in this, in, in this industry before. So another way companies may uh, face some, some risk is by missing their chance to patent their proprietary t technology as the prior art universe expands. Uh, 
let me explain a little. So the, pat the laws for patent prosecution state that you can receive a patent for your invention so long as it is novel and non-obvious. In other words, that means if someone else has invented it first or written about your invention first and that information is available, then you will not be granted a patent for that same technology, for that same invention. As we were saying, more and more companies are coming into this space. There are more conferences all the time, more papers being published, a lot more media attention. Um, that's expanding the universe of prior art at a very high rate. So as that prior art universe expands, um, that reduces the area that's available uh, for patenting. Now, Jim, I know you've been speaking about a number of trends. You've been talking to different groups. What are some of the key trends that you're especially tracking today? We're tracking trends in both patent prosecution and patent litigation. Our research shows a significant uptick in the number of patents being granted in the information security space uh, between 2006 and 2011. In fact, what we're seeing is about uh, an increase of about 150%. Looking at... Uh, uh, at the litigation side, we've also seen a substantial increase in the number of patent lawsuits being filed where patents covering information security are, are at stake. So we are tracking trends in both uh, patent litigation and patent prosecution. On the patent prosecution side, we've seen an increase of about um, double of, of the number of patents granted on information security inventions between 2006 and 2011. Uh, the number went up from uh, just about 2,400 in 2006 to 4,800 in 2011. Looking at the litigation side, we've also seen a substantial increase in the number of patents being asserted there as well. In 2000, there were only 16 information security patents asserted uh, in the United States, and in 2010, we saw that number go up to 89. Now, Jim, in another direction, back in September, President Obama signed into law the America Invents Act. How has this act impacted information security companies? You know, as we were discussing, the pressure on information security uh, IP has been increasing through the uh, increase in the number of patents being granted and through the enforcement efforts. And the American Invents Act that was signed into law in September has only really served to increase that pressure. The act is, of course, the most significant patent reform that we've seen in this country in many decades. Uh, the key change that it introduces being that, it, that we are moving from a first-to-invent system to a first-to-file system. Uh, this, this change will take effect in March of 2013. So we have about one year to kind of get things in order. Uh, but it's going to make a big difference for how small companies operate. It used to be that the day that you conceived of your invention in your head and started working to reduce it to practice was your date of invention. Uh, now it's not going to work that way anymore. Uh, your, the, the, your key date will be the date when you actually file your patent application at the PTO. Uh, so for large companies that already have invention disclosure processes in place, and they've got sort of a patent machine uh, that works to, to get inventions uh, to the patent office, will be affected a little bit less. They may need to uh, speed things up a little bit, uh, but it shouldn't substantially change what their operations look like. For small companies that don't have any infrastructure in place to assess uh, proprietary technology and make determinations about whether or not to file for patent applications, 
um, then it's going to be a little bit more problematic because it will require them to put these structures in place and, more importantly, to put the money up front uh, sooner than they might necessarily want to uh, under the existing system. Jimmy, you've outlined a number of issues. How do you advise organizations to tackle these challenges, especially the ones that relate to information security patents? You know, there are a few things companies can do. I think the most important thing is to be proactive. And for a lot of companies, that means having a some kind of defensive strategy in place. Um, how How you what sort of actions you take, that depends a little bit on what type of company you are, whether you're a consumer of information security or a producer of information security solutions. So for companies that are innovating in information uh, security, they can use the patent process to their advantage in a lot of cases. Um, Companies that are able to get patents on their inventions uh, can license those inventions and use those uh, inventions as a revenue source. They can also use them defensively as well um, if, a, if a company is threatened with a patent infringement action. In some cases, a cross-license can be worked out if uh, both companies have intellectual property rights that are of interest to the other company. Uh, so there's at least having patents creates the possibility of having that kind of opportunity. Um, the other thing companies can do, especially if they're not innovating in information security, if they're consuming intellectual, if they're consuming information security technology, is to monitor the, site, the patent landscape essentially uh, before bringing out new products, uh, before using uh, certain information security technology. They should look and see if that technology is covered by existing patents. So it's possible to do a patent search and, and find out if other if other companies already have patents covering the technology that you're planning to use. Final question for you, Jim. The bottom line, what are the questions that organizations really need to be asking themselves now when it comes to information security and patents? You know, one of the key questions that I think people need to ask that they're probably not asking enough is, where is my software coming from? Um, a lot of times people are, are very quick to, to use free and open source software. And I think people need to watch and, and, and know who's standing behind that software, if anybody, and what sort of indemnification uh, options might be out there. So uh, if you're using uh, software that is, that is basically backed by nobody, and it turns out that that software uh, runs into some, some patent infringement problems, uh, you know, the, the end user will be responsible for whatever infringement whatever infringement is uh, found to take place. However, if you use software that's backed uh, by some organization who has agreed to indemnify for uh, any infringement or to, to make good on uh, any changes that need to be made to the software in light of those allegations of infringement, uh, that can uh, really put you in a much better position. Jim, thanks so much for your time and your insight today. It's been an illuminating topic and one that I'm sure the information security professionals haven't thought enough about. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've been talking about cybersecurity and patents. I've been talking with James Zanaro. He's a partner with the Cypher Law Group. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.